0: ...in Psalms, but I'd like for you to turn to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to get right to work this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and so Exodus 17 is where we're going to start. I want to begin by sharing with you a story in the episode of the nation of Israel. After they had gone through the crossing of the Red Sea, and they are there in the wilderness, we see an episode here in Exodus chapter 17 that sets the stage really for Psalm 95 where we're going to camp out this morning. But I want to start in Exodus 17. So let's read together. I know you guys are all turning there. But Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rocks of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah, and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This episode is the beginning of the apostasy of that generation of Israel. The place where the water came out of the rock was called masah It means Testing. A place of testing. God also said to call it Meribah, which means quarreling. Masah Meribah, quarreling, testing. These soon became code words for that generation in Israel that turned their back on God. And they serve as an example to future generations up to today of what happens when you turn your back on God. When you test God, when you quarrel against God, when you disobey God. Now, you go to Numbers chapter 11. You fast forward in time to Numbers chapter 11, and the people again are complaining against Moses. They're, this time, they're hungry. They want food. They want meat. And so God gets angry with them, and, and God actually causes a fire to burn out in an outer part of the camp. And then Moses is so distraught, he says, God, just kill me. I don't want to have to deal with these people anymore. Just just kill me. Just take my life. But God doesn't. Then you get to Numbers chapter 12, and Moses' brother Aaron and his sister Miriam basically revolt against Moses and a, and a bit of racism. They don't like the fact that Moses took a, an Ethiopian, a Cushite wife, a wife who was black-skinned. They didn't like that, and they wondered, why is Moses in charge, and we're not in charge? And so what God does is he causes Miriam to break out in leprosy, as an act of judgment, and then you get to Numbers chapter 13, and the people again keep rebelling against the Lord, they keep rebelling against leadership, and basically you know the story from Numbers 13, God sends 12 spies into the Israelite, uh, the Israelite spies into the promised land to spy out the land, and you know the rest of the story, they see giants in the land, they see giant grapes, and they come back and they say we can't take the land, and God says you have disobeyed because the time." is now to take the land and so numbers 13 and 14 show the epitome of this generation that was judged by God in the wilderness they attempt to stone Moses and Joshua and numbers 14 verse 11 listen to what the Lord said to Moses numbers 14 11, and the Lord said to Moses how long will this people despise me how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? How long will this people despise me? And here's what God does to that generation. That generation comes under his judgment. God pronounces judgment on that generation and says you will not enter the promised land. You will not go in. Joshua and Caleb will go in, but you will wander for 40 years in the wilderness and you will die in the desert under my wrath because you disobeyed. You despise me. You've committed the sin of apostasy. You've turned your back upon me. Listen to the words of God in Numbers 14, 21 through 23. But truly as I live... And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. This generation here, the generation that started to disobey God at the water place, and who disobeyed God by not going into the promised land, they serve as an example of the sin of apostasy. Now you may ask, what in the world is the sin of apostasy? It's not losing your salvation. It's pretending to be a Christian. It's pretending that you know the truth. It's hanging around church people. It's acting like a Christian all the time, knowing that you're not deep down in your soul. And there comes a point in time when you defiantly turn your back on God and say no more. And you rebel against god you harden your heart and that's an example here this generation is example of what happens to a people that harden their heart when god comes to them in grace when god comes to them with the gospel you see there's a danger in the church of thinking that you're a sheep when you're really a goat thinking you're a wheat when you're really a weed Now, you may ask yourself, how how does this play out in Emmanuel Baptist Church? Is it possible that here this morning, among the congregation of God's people, there are some who think they are Christians but are not? Absolutely. I don't know who you are. I can't look into your soul, but I do know that the book of Hebrews and the book of 1 John were written specifically to Christians, to a group of people where there were those within the church that thought they were Christians, thought they were Christians, may have played a good game at the Christian thing, hung around Christians, hung around church life, talked a good game, but in the depths of their heart, they were never truly saved. And then when time came and when persecution came and when temptations came, they proved the fact that they weren't truly a Christian by falling away. You need to have a category in your mind that the Bible calls the sin of apostasy, the sin of thinking you're a Christian, but not really being a Christian. It's not losing your salvation. It's not having salvation in the first place and then falling away, proving that you never were truly Christ. Remember those deafening words of Christ on the day of judgment? He may say to some, I never knew you. But Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. I never knew you. Lord, Lord, I, I, I've done miracles in your name. I never knew you. Lord, Lord, I went to church and gave a tithe and I actually went on a mission trip. I never knew you. This generation here serves as an example of what happens to those who fall away, who commit the sin of apostasy. Now, what's the flip side of the sin of apostasy? What's the other, what's the other doctrine The other doctrine is what we call the perseverance of the saints or or eternal security or the idea that those who are truly saved will be kept to the very end. The Bible teaches that if you truly are a child of God, if you've truly been born again, if you truly are a converted Christian, you will remain to the end saved and you will not fall away if you are a true Christian. And so what you've got here in Psalm 95, so let's turn to Psalm 95, that's our text for this morning. You've got two things. You've got the worship and you've got the warning. The worship and the warning. We worship God because of our eternal security. We worship God because we are secure and safe in his hand as true Christians. But there's a warning for those who would harden their heart, just like that generation at Meribah and Massah. When they complained about the water. And that generation that wandered for 40 years and died in the desert, all throughout the scriptures, is referred to time and time again as an example to not harden your heart if you hear the voice of the Lord today. So let's look at Psalm 95 this morning. And we see worship and we see a warning. So let's first look at the worship. Psalm 95. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise for the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." The worship and the warning. You see both of these issues here, but we see it unfold in three distinct movements. Three distinct sections of this psalm. Let's look at the first section, verses 1 through 5. What we see in verses 1 through 5 is a call to worship the Lord as sovereign creator over the entire world. It's a worship of God as the sovereign creator over the entire world. Listen to the wording here. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's this this idea of coming into the presence of God and worshiping him, singing to him, coming with thanksgiving, coming with our worship. And and God there is called the rock of our salvation. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he, the God of our salvation. Let me just stop and just remind us of something. We're saved people. You should never get over your salvation. If you ever get over the fact that God reached down from heaven into the gutter of your sin and pulled you out and saved you by his sovereign grace and gave you new life, we should never get over that. Never get over the fact that you are a saved person and God didn't have to do it. God wasn't obligated to do it, but he did it out of his sheer grace for sinners. Never get over the fact that God is the rock of our salvation. But notice why he's worthy to be praised. The psalmist here says he is worthy to be praised. The starting of verse 3, 4, that's a, that's a for clause, a because clause, a purpose statement there. Why is he worthy to be praised? Why do we come into his presence? Why do we make a joyful noise? For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain are his also, the sea is his for he made it, and his hands formed dry land. The God is a great God, a great king above all gods. Now look at his lowercase g. God, the Lord Yahweh, is God over all gods. Now, now all the other gods are really no gods at all. They're false gods. Listen to Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The answer, nobody. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is no one's like God. You see, in the ancient world, these false gods would only have jurisdiction over one part of creation. You may have a moon god, but he was only over the moon. You'd have a sun god only over the sun, a sea god only over the sea, maybe a mountain god only over the mountain. But what the psalmist here is doing is saying that in contradistinction to all of the pagan deities that are out there, the true living God is God over all of it. He's over the highest heights. You go to the top of the mountains, he's God. You go to the depths of the earth, he's God. He's over the entire oceans, he's God. Over the dry land, he's God. His universal sovereignty extends to all areas of creation. He is the sovereign God over all. He is the creator. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth... Wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One of the primary themes of worship throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God is creator. He is our creator. He's the creator of the entire universe. And so the first part of the psalm says, let's come into his courts with thanksgiving. Let's worship him. Let's sing to him because he's the great God. He's the creator. He's created all things. Everything that exists comes from God. But the psalmist takes it one step further. He kind of focuses in on something more particular in the creatorship of God. And that's the second thing that we see here. In verses 6 through 7a, 7a, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture the sheep of his hand. Secondly, we see a call to worship the Lord as sovereign creator of his chosen people. Before it was, he's the creator of the entire world. Now it's focused down to he's the creator of a people. God is sovereign over making a people, a chosen people. Now it's interesting that this time we're to bow down were to kneel. Before it was to sing. And there's different postures in worship. When we come to corporate worship, we sing and we shout and we give glorious praise to God verbally. But here it says, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel prostrate before our great God. Let us humble ourselves before God. Why? Because he's a maker. It's talking about God being a shepherd. We're the sheep of his hand. God is the shepherd. We are the sheep. This is none other than God creating a people out of the Exodus. When God took the nation of Israel that was in bondage to Exodus, he took them out of bondage. He provided a substitutionary atonement with the blood of a lamb. He took them through a Red Sea experience. And then once they had been saved by grace, he called them as a particular people and said, you are now my people. You are a chosen people. As a matter of fact, listen to what Exodus 19 says, what God has done with his people. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you speaking to the nation of Israel there in the Old Testament, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is creating a people. God, a shepherd, is creating a sheep. In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, in the period of redemptive history when the psalm was written, obviously this was speaking of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel being the treasured possession that God had brought out of Egypt and created as a people. But lest we think that God does not have a chosen people today, what does he say about us as the church? What does he say about the Gentile church? As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter is speaking to the Gentiles, Peter is speaking to non-Jews, and he uses the vocabulary, he uses the wording that was used to describe the nation of Israel in the desert, and listen to how he describes us. This is who we are. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen us to be his people. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's made us as Christians his people. We are the sheep. Jesus himself is the good shepherd and we are the sheep. Jesus tells us in John 10, 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who does Jesus lay down his life for? The sheep. We are the sheep. The psalm says we are the sheep of his hand. God is our maker. God is our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And so from the first part of this psalm, we see two motivations to worship. I mean, come into his courts with thanksgiving, worship him, praise him because he's the creator of all things. That's the first motivation to worship. The second motivation is come into his presence and bow down and worship him because he's saved us. He's laid down his life for us. He's called us out of darkness into light. He's made us his people. We are his sheep. And now the psalm could have just ended right there, and we've been good. It have been a good, a good hymn of praise. We'd be like, amen, Jesus. Amen, you're our creator. Amen, you're our savior. Let's fold up the Bible. That's the end of the psalm. But is that where the psalm ends? No, you have a third section, and it almost seems like it doesn't fit. It almost seems like there's an abrupt distinction between the first half and the second half of the psalm. Why is the second half here? Well, as we'll see, it fits very nicely. There's a third part to the psalm. The first part, worship the Lord as creator. Second part, worship the Lord because he's created a people, the sheep. But thirdly, 7b through the very end, verse 11 it's not worship, it's a warning, a warning from the Lord to not fall away into hard-hearted disobedience. What does he say there in the second half of verse 11? Today, today. It's interesting that he uses the word today. Today meant something to the original audience and today means something to us. What is today today? Today is any day that you hear the voice of the Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so here's the warning this morning. It's the same warning that was given to the nation of Israel back there in Psalm 95. It's the same warning to us today. When you hear the word of God preached, when you're confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when God comes to you in his power and his glory, when you're in a worship service where you sing about Jesus and you're confronted with the word of Jesus today, now, under the sound of my voice, before you leave this place, in these moments right now, do not harden your heart. There's problems when it happens when we harden our hearts. Hebrews three twelve through 13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the original language there in the Greek text, harden is the Greek word "sclerano." It means a hardening of the muscles, a hardening of the bones. We have the same thing today. What's called the hardening of the arteries? What happens when your arteries harden? You get calcification and bad cholesterol that hardens in your arteries, and if you're not careful, oxygen can't flow through your blood, and you have a stroke, and you have a heart attack, and so the hardening of the arteries hurts your physical heart. Think about the spiritual hardening of your heart. He's warning us here. He's saying, do not harden your heart. I don't have time to talk about this this morning, It's a conversation for another time, but there comes a point where if you continue to harden your heart, God may harden your heart even further. I'll let that just hang out there. Look at verse eight and nine. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massah in the wilderness. Now, in verses one through seven, the psalmist is speaking. The psalmist is speaking. Come let us worship. Come let us bow down. Now God is speaking. God is speaking. God is speaking in first person here. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. God is speaking now. And what sermon illustration is God going to give? All the way back to that Exodus generation that was judged that started where? What does he say? Do not harden your heart as at Meribah. Remember we read that in Exodus X 17. And at Massah, quarreling and testing. God's using code word here saying, don't be like that generation that wandered for 40 years and died in the desert under my judgment because they rebelled. They despise me. And all throughout the scriptures, God brings up this generation as a warning. Look at that generation and see the warning of a generation that received the grace of God at the rock. They got water. They heard the voice of the Lord. They had the manna. They had the quail. They had all of these things at their disposal of God, but they turned their back on him. They hardened their heart, and they fell away. And he's saying, don't be like that generation. Look at verse 10. Look at the strong language God uses here. Did you ever think God uses this type of language? Have you ever read your Bible? For 40 years, I loathed that generation. Loathed. It's a strong way of saying I hated those people. I thought God wasn't supposed to hate. Have you read your Bible lately? God hates sin. And God will punish sin. And God said there in verse 11, I'm swearing in my wrath, they will never enter my rest. God's saying I'm making a pledge in my anger that they are not going to enter the promised land. They're going to wander for 40 years in the desert and die under my judgment because they rebelled. They hardened their hearts. They would not enter the promised land rest. And he gives this as a warning. Now turn with me in your New Testaments to the book of Hebrews. And the reason why we're turning to Hebrews is because the New Testament writer gives a commentary on Psalm 95. And I think it's very important that we see what a New Testament writer does to an Old Testament text to shed more light upon it because we've got the full counsel of God's word now. We have a New Testament and an Old Testament. How did the New Testament writers take an Old Testament teaching and explain it for us? Well, we've got Hebrews 3 and 4 that explains Psalm 95. So let's look real quick here at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, on into chapter 4. Hebrews is toward the end of your Bible kind of go to revelation and backtrack a few books. It's on page 1002. In my Bible, I don't know what page it's on in your Bible. Let's read Hebrews 3 and see if you hear the different see if you hear a similarity here. Therefore, verse 7, Hebrews 3 verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For we share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. With those who listened, But we have said, for we for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Do you see what the writer's doing here? He, he's taking that generation. That was in Exodus 17, that was in Numbers 13, that was brought up in Psalm 95. He quotes Psalm 95, and now he turns squarely to these Christians in the New Testament and says, here's an example. They rebelled in the wilderness. They rebelled at Meribah. They rebelled at Massah. They heard the word of the Lord. They received the gospel. They received the good news. But there was one thing that they did not do. They did not believe. They hardened their hearts and they did not believe and thus they did not enter my rest. That generation did not enter the promised land and what he's saying here is there's a different type of rest now. It's not the promised land. The rest now is Christ in heaven. You fail to enter not the promised land but the ultimate promised land, heaven, eternal life. And so he's using this as as an object lesson. We have it in Hebrews 3, we have it in Hebrews 4, we have it in Psalm 95, we have it in Exodus 17, we have it in Numbers 13 and 14. We have a generation that saw the miracles of God, that saw all these things but yet fell away. And so it leads us to ask a question that you're probably asking. Hopefully you're asking this question. Can a true believer in Jesus Christ commit this sin and fall away? Can a true believer who's been sanctified, who's been regenerated, who's been justified, who's truly been born again, can he or she ultimately and finally fall away and reject the living God and harden their heart? And my answer to you is absolutely not. A true believer cannot do that. Why? We've got the threefold guarantee of the Trinity itself. And what do I mean by that? What has the Father in heaven done for his people? The Father in heaven has chose us before the foundation of the world to be saved. Ephesians 1, 4-5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Christ has saved us And that salvation was planned in eternity past when God the Father said, I'm going to choose a people, not because they're good, not because they deserve it, not because they're worth it, but simply because I want to create a people. And God the Father chose us, the first person of the Trinity. And what God chooses and what God does before the foundation of the world stands. But not only that, Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he came and purchased for himself a people. When he died on the cross, Jesus got what he paid for his people. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If the Father has chosen us and Jesus has died for us, that should be good enough to know that we're eternally secure. But the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, seals us until the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you, and He's never going to leave you, and as a matter of fact, He's going to be there until you get to heaven, guaranteeing that you get to heaven. So you've got the triple guarantee of the Father who chose you, the Son who died for you, and the Holy Spirit that lives in you, and if that's not enough praise the lord listen to the words of jesus as the shepherd the shepherd of the sheep remember psalm 95 let's bow down before our shepherd we are the sheep listen to the words of jesus in john 10 27 through 30 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me i give them eternal life who gives them eternal life jesus does and they will never perish. Greek text, they will never, ever, no, not ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you are truly a Christian, you are in the double grip of the Son and the Father. He holds you eternally secure. The Father has secured your salvation. The Son has secured your salvation. The Holy Spirit has secured your salvation. And Jesus as the great shepherd holds you in his hand and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So can a true Christian ever fall away? Absolutely not here's where it gets scary can a person who professes faith in christ but does not possess faith in christ can they fall away yes yes and so you have to ask the question well why are these warning passages here when he's talking to christians If the entire audience is a church, if the entire audience is the Israelites, why give a warning of falling away? And here's the reason why. Within the visible church here this morning, there are some of you who are not Christians. But you think you are. And writers give warnings, preachers give warnings as a way to scare the living daylights out of you. Eternal security is to be a it is to be a source of comfort for the saved, and the sin of apostasy is supposed to be a source of shock and fear for those that think they're saved. There are too many people I've met over the years that thought they were saved, and thought they were safe, and thought they were hunky dory, and thought they were good, but never repented and believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. It's to shock you out of your sinfulness. If you're truly saved this morning, you should get on your knees and bow down and worship the Lord because He saved you. You're His sheep. You're eternally secure. You are in His grip. You love Him. He loves you. It's it's a glorious relationship where He's never going to leave you or forsake you. You should worship if you're a true Christian. If you're down the core of your being, know you're not a Christian, but you play a good game at being a Christian and you think you're a Christian and you talk the good Christian lingo, but you know on the day of judgment you will not go to heaven. You should be scared. And I'm not here to scare you. The writer of Hebrews is scaring you. Psalm 95 is scaring you. So what should you do? If you were to find yourself in a situation where you're dangerously in in danger of hardening your heart, if if you're thinking you're falling away, if you're thinking that that, that, that you're not a Christian, but you think you are, what should you do? Well, look at the passage in Hebrews. Verse 319. Why Why were they not able to enter the promised land, that original generation? What does it say there in your Bible in verse 19? Unbelief. What does chapter 4 verse 2 say? They did not unite it with faith. If you are here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And I'm talking about saving faith here. I'm not talking about do you believe Jesus exists. Do you have some facts in your head about who he is? Do you think he's a good person? Do you you know that he rose from the dead and he died on the cross? You can go out in Sterling today and ask people, did Jesus die on the cross and rise again? Most everybody will say yes. Are they going to heaven? I don't know. But if you have not put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as salvation, you've not bowed your knee to him, you've not surrendered to him, you've not called upon him as Lord of your life, you have not repented of your sins, you are not saved regardless of what you say, regardless of what people may think. So it comes down to saving faith, a surrendering faith, a faith that says I'm placing all of my trust in Christ alone. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm not trusting in being a good person. I'm not faking it. But I'm getting to the point where I realize I am lost and dead and hellbound. As our song said earlier, all I have is Christ. And my only hope is to cast myself at the mercy of Jesus and to fall at his knees and say, Jesus, save me from my sins. And the Bible says Jesus never turns away anybody that comes in repentance and faith but there's a warning here today today if you hear his voice I've been scared to preach this message this week because anytime you hear a passage of scripture that says today is the day don't harden your heart what happens when you leave this place and you you, you leave this place not responding you've missed an opportunity will god ever give you that opportunity again i don't know god may or may not he's sovereign it doesn't say tomorrow it doesn't say when i get around to it. it doesn't say when i feel like it the Bible's very clear it says today if you hear his voice now unless you're sleeping this morning which some of you may have you've heard his voice Now, his voice comes through a pastor who comes through his word, but God's word has clearly been spoken. Do not harden your heart. If you're a pretender this morning, if you think that you're a Christian and deep down you're not and you're playing a game, be shocked. Be shocked. But know this. If you come to Jesus, he will save you. Don't be let it said of you like it said, it was said of that generation. That generation lost out on the promised rest of the promised land. Don't be let it said of you this morning that you missed out on heaven because you hardened your heart and you spent eternity in hell. Come to Jesus and he will give you rest. Listen to what Matthew 11, 28 through 29 says. This is Jesus' invitation to you this morning anybody that's here this morning this is not my invitation this is Jesus himself invitation to you this morning listen to the words of Jesus come to me all who labor and are heavy laden what does it mean to labor it means I'm trying to work up my salvation I'm trying to be a good person I'm trying to juggle all these things to prove my worth to God come to me who are heavy laden heavy laden with what with guilt over your sin come to me and what does Jesus say? I will give you rest. Does that just mean you're going to have a stress-free life? No, when Jesus says, I will give you rest, that word rest is a code word for I will give you eternal life in heaven. I will give you rest for your soul. You will able to enter into my rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God. He is our maker. We are a sheep, the sheep of his hand. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning if you're physically able to do it. Sometimes posture is everything. If you're physically able to, I'm going to ask us to come and let us kneel and bow down before our God. I'm going to ask you to kneel where you're at. Maybe may be hard on your knees, I understand that, but sometimes when we kneel and we bow down before God, the is commanding us to do it. I'm not commanding you to do it. I'm asking if you're physically able to do it, let us kneel and bow down. If you would like to come up at the front and kneel, if you have more space up here, we're just gonna get on our knees this morning. And I know this is not seeker sensitive, and I know that this is one of those things where what's Sean doing? And I really don't care about any of that kind of stuff. What I care about is that we obey the living God and kneel before our maker. Come let us worship. And I want us just to kneel in the quietness of this moment. When you kneel, you're in a posture of dependence. You're in a posture of humility. You're in a posture of saying, it's not my life. It's not me. I'm coming. I'm surrendering. I'm coming and kneeling before the living God. And there's two things I want us to do while we kneel. If you're a Christian this morning, just spend time praising God that he saved you. Spend time that the Father chose you, the Son died for you, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus has you in the grip of his hands. He will never leave and forsake you. Spend time just in worship on your knees. That we have a great shepherd and he's created for himself a sheep. But for the rest of you this morning, as you bow down before your maker, One of these days, you're going to bow. You may bow in heaven as his child, or you're going to bow in hell as his enemy, but you will bow. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, or you think you have, but you know deep in your heart you haven't, would you spend these moments bowing down before your maker and crying out to Jesus to save you? And there's joy in that because he does. Christ is not going to turn away anybody here this morning that comes to him in true repentance and faith. If you come to him in brokenness, if you come to him in humility, if you cry out for him to forgive you, he stands ready to forgive. So let us just spend a few moments in quietness bowing before our maker in prayer, hearing the worship and the warning from the psalm. we have heard your voice loud and clear. We don't want hard hearts. Would you soften our hearts? Father, if we're Christians this morning and we have somehow have a hardened heart towards others or we have a hardened heart towards you or we have bitterness in our heart because things aren't going the way we'd like them to do. Lord, would you just show us that and forgive us and, and give us the joy of our salvation and soften our hearts? We want soft hearts. And Father, if there are people in this room this morning that know, I don't know, but you know and they know in the core of their soul that they are not a Christian. They may go to church. They may even say they're a Christian. They may have even come here for years and years. Or maybe they just walked in out of, the, out of the blue. Lord, you know. Would today be the day of their salvation, Father? Would you soften their heart? Grant them the gift of faith to cry out to you and repentance? Lord, we don't want to leave this place. We don't want to leave this place cold and and unaffected. Father, we as a congregation are on our knees. We we are submitting ourselves to you as our great God. You are the great king. There is no other God. There is no other savior. There is no other place we can go. And Father, sometimes it's easy to bow down here in a worship service when we're among people that believe the same way we do. But Lord, the moment we step foot out of those doors, do we live lives that are bowed down to you and your lordship? when things get tough at work, when we're tempted by our friends, when we're, when we're around people that may affect us in different ways, do we live a bowed, surrendered lifestyle to your lordship? We want to bow down and worship you. So Father, I just pray for soft hearts this morning. I pray for soft hearts. Would you spend just a few more minutes in prayer this morning? you're bowed and your eyes are closed, if after the service after we sing our final song, if you still just need time to linger in worship or if you need to linger at the front or you need to talk to someone or you need prayer or you need encouragement or you need questions answered, I'm gonna be up here. Pastor Andrew's gonna be up here. Others will be up here, both men and women, to encourage you. So don't leave this place without seeking the help that you need. Father, we come into your courts with praise. We sing for joy at the rock of our salvation. You are beautiful. You are glorious. You are wonderful. You have created the heavens and the earth. You have created for yourself a people. You are our great shepherd. We are your sheep. Today, we want to worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and living inside of us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have us in the grip of your hand. Thank you, Jesus, that no power of hell or scheme of man can come against us, but that we are secure to the end. And Lord, may those who are playing the game this morning not harden their hearts, but today hear your voice and come to repentance and faith.